Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Welcome to Kesha and the Creepies. Today, I'm so excited to be talking to our next guest. Now, I don't know how else to put it. His name is Oberon Zell Ravenheart, and he's a real wizard. He made unicorns. He went on a quest for mermaids. And he lived next door to a serial killer. And he's written many books. And we're talking to him today. So we have a lot of ground to cover. Let's get into it. Welcome to Kesha and the Creepies. Thank you so much for joining me today. I am so excited to have the Wizard Oz, Oberon Zell Ravenheart. So if you could just tell our listeners who you are and what you do. I'm Oberon Zell. I'm a wizard. I am the founder and headmaster of a school of wizardry called the Gray School of Wizardry. I'm the founder, uh, a co-founder and primate of the Church of All Worlds, which is the oldest and first established pagan church in the world. First one to claim uh, the identity of pagan back in 1967 is when we first took that on. It goes back quite a ways. I'm um, an author. I've written a number of books on uh, mostly on magical subjects uh, and also 
mythical beasties and forgotten history, things like that. And many more to come. I'm still working on that. Uh, at one point, I raised unicorns, which seems to have been a bit of interest <laughs> there. Yes. Oh, my gosh. I'm so happy you brought that up. So what else would you like to know? What else would you like me to say? Oh, I would just love, basically, when I came across you on the internet. So there's blessings that come with the internet, as well as frustrations. Um, yeah, I'm all over the place. <laughs> Google my name. You get all kinds of stuff. Yeah, Oberon Zell Ravenheart, who's a wizard I came across. And then I started diving deeper and all of a sudden unicorns came up, which to anyone who knows me, they know I'm obsessed with unicorns and rainbows. And I'm basically like a five-year-old, but I'm 33. So it took me on this journey to finding you. It was a quest to finding Oberon. So we found you, tracked you down. And now I just wanted to like hear from you how you created unicorns or did they exist in the past? Like what, how, what, tell me about that. Well, um, many, many years ago when my beloved life mate, Morning Glory, who we had 40 years together until she, uh, she passed away, discorporated, moved on, whatever, six years ago. But when we first got together, we had so many shared interests. It was just uncanny. We were actually reading the same novel at the time we met. It was that uncanny. And one of the things we were interested in, as we discovered early, was um, critters of all kinds. I mean, we worked with critter care during our life. Our house was a zoo inhabited by all kinds of critters. We lived out in the woods for many years with all kinds of wildlife being part of our household. We were very much into animals, and we were particularly interested in the mythical beasties, the legendary ones. Um, you know, and this ranged from from imaginary creatures entirely to ones that were actually maybe real, but we haven't been able to confirm them in cryptozoology, like you know, Loch Ness monster and Bigfoot and stuff like that. And but we, our feeling was that behind every story there was a grain of truth somewhere. And we thought it would be really neat to write a book in which we explored these stories and found out what they were based on, found out the truth at the heart of it. So we set out to do research on that, and the book was going to be called Creatures of Night Brought to Light, which was inspired from um, the novel The Last Unicorn by Peter Beagle, where there's this uh, kind of a gypsy witch who has a little traveling menagerie, and she calls it Creatures of Night Brought to Light. So we thought that would be a cool title for a book. So as we were doing our research um, and traveling around the country, this is before there was an internet, before you could Google stuff. Now it's easy. But back in those days, you had to go to libraries. And we traveled around and, and visited libraries all over the place. And in one of those, at the University of Oregon, in Eugene, Oregon, we discovered the secret of the unicorn. And that is basically that unicorns were real animals who actually existed at various times in the past, but they were not a species, so they did not continue. They were an art form that was created by a secret um, process of animal husbandry that had been discovered and lost and rediscovered several times throughout history and applied to different species of horned animals. So the earliest unicorns that we saw from the Bronze Age, like 4,000 years ago, were taurine. They were bull unicorns. There was a the oriental unicorn are chervine. They're deer unicorns. They have branching horn. The um, 
the golden age of Greece was inaugurated by the appearance of an Arene, a ram unicorn, at the court of the newly inaugurated um, king of Athens, uh, Pericles, whose reign was the golden age of Greece. There are many, many of these that appear, but the ones that were the most famous were the Caprine unicorns that we see in the medieval tapestries. Those are the ones with the beards. Now, there's only one yes. kind of animal on the planet, mammal, that has hooves and beards, and that's goats. And we set about finding the right breeding stock to be the animals that look like the tapestries. Everybody always assumes, naturally, because of all appearances, that they grow out of the skull, but they don't. Their growth is precipitated, stimulated by glands that are in the skin over the center, over the forehead, before birth. And they're, in, they're purely in the skin, and these are called horn buds, and these are little glands. And within the first 24 hours after birth, these glands start secreting enzymes. And the enzymes percolate down into the bone and stimulate the development of horns at that point. So it does end up going into the bone eventually. The, the enzymes do. But before they do, the skin is loose, just like the skin on the back of your hand or on your own forehead. And these can be manipulated. And if the tissue is manipulated so that both of the nodes secrete their enzymes in one spot, a single horn will grow rather than two separate ones. And the trick is uniting the horn buds prior to that beginning of the process. And this, um, this was actually a discovery that was made by a um, biologist uh, named Franklin Dove in the 1930s at the Maine Research Station in, in, in Maine, the state of Maine. And he was interested in, he was studying horn development, and he discovered that's how horns develop. And then he did, he was interested in unicorns, just out of curiosity and fascination. He said, I wonder if that may be how unicorns could have been created. So he tried it on a, a newborn bull calf, and it worked. And he produced this. He produced this magnificent taurine unicorn that got very little attention because it was just the middle of uh, the beginning of World War II and everybody forgot. And besides, they didn't look like anybody's idea of a unicorn. It was a big bull with a single horn. But the Is earliest there images are like, there. There are. I can't believe nobody cared about this. Well, it, it was odd. It just kind of got lost and forgotten and obscured by history. But look, think of this. You said that. Um, Everybody these days you talk to, you ask about unicorns, and everybody, oh, well, they're just a mythical beast. They're not real. You know, it's just, it's just not a real thing. And yet, it was only 40 years ago, in 1980, that living unicorns were brought back to the world and were all the big sensation for the entire decade of the 80s. That We were in every newspaper, every magazine, or TV shows, books. It was huge. It was a sensation. And 40 years later, the world has forgotten. Right? Why are unicorns getting written out of history? Well, that's the thing. Isn't it interesting? Isn't that fascinating? How much else has been written out of history? How much else have we lost and forgotten? How many of the well, things so that many we think things. of as myths and legends were actually something true? Which is what initially was the start of our book. That's what we wanted to write a book about. And we did write the book. And there's a chapter in it about the unicorns. And there's chapters in it about mermaids and unicorns and dragons and all kinds of things. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, 
Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Snag a job is where America goes to hire. With the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy to use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snag a Job is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Can you tell me about mermaids? Because I really am, I find, I fancy myself a mermaid. So I want to know your, your wisdoms of the mermaids. So as for mermaids, after that, after we made our uh, lease agreement with the circus, we decided, well... What are we going to do next? What can we do for an encore? And at that time, there were reports coming into the Cryptozoological Society, which we had joined, about sightings of mermaids um, in uh, the Coral Sea, in an, off of an island called New Ireland, which is just north of New Guinea. And we said, well, we should get up an expedition then and go and find them. That would seem like a pretty cool thing to do. So we all took scuba lessons. Uh, we got a crew of 13 people, including an underwater film crew that had done a movie called The Deep. And they joined us for that. And um, we hired a dive boat. And we sailed to uh, the island of New Ireland. And there they were. And we found them. Um, it was a lot more to the adventure than that. And you can see the whole story in... The video that was made. There's a video documentary called "The Wizard oh, I Oz." I saw the video. Yes, yeah. the Wizard Oz. Yes. So it's in there. So there, the truth behind that legend is also a living creature that is um, uh, called the Pishmary or the Fishwoman, which is basically equivalent to our word mermaid, which means woman of the sea. 
And the main reason for that identification is that the females have breasts like a human woman. And, and um, the idea was that everything that has, lives on land has an analog in the sea. So we have sea lions and sea elephants and you know, seahorses and all these kind of things. So the idea of having sea women with these creatures seemed logical. And many people have associated the mermaid legend with Cyrenia, which is essentially correct, but they've mistakenly identified them with dugongs, which don't look anything like that. And they have this big paddle-shaped tail like a spoon, whereas the 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 uh, the, the sorry not two guns uh, manatees sorry manatees oh the manatees is that what it was because I saw the video the wizard right. Oz and I yeah and the, up manatees the are not are not the same at all they're they're big fat slow moving freshwater critters with these big flat spoon shaped tails but these animals the ones that give rise to the legend of the mermaid are are as different from that as a sea lion is from a walrus in other words they live in the ocean they're fast and sleek and um, have a tail like a whale tail, this beautiful fluked tail. And they're extremely rare and, and probably on the verge of extinction at this point. So it's, um, it, it's quite an issue. And our discovery of them identifying with the mermaid legend was a big deal because we observed them in the wild uh, in behavior that was not known at all to have occurred. So, but we tracked it down. We tracked the legend down to its source, and we did a big report for the Cryptozoological Society, and we filmed the whole thing and came home pretty broke. And that was right. that was the end of the story with that. Was that sad as someone who – It was very sad. Can... It was tragic because while we yeah. were at the village, uh, that the sightings had been done, um, the one evening a little Japanese tugboat called Cuddles – pulled into the into the harbor and anchored next to us and um, the there had been a Japanese enterprise on the island where they were cutting down the forest and putting piling the logs monstrous big old rainforest logs up into a raft at the beach and then the idea would be eventually this big huge ship would come and a little tugboat would come up and tie up the raft of logs and haul it out to the big ship where they would take it to Japan and sink them all in the water awaiting the end of the, the total deforestation of the rainforests of the islands. It's a big story, kind of an awful one actually. And we discovered all this going on. So at that evening, however, we were on shore with the local folks having a sing-sing and uh, you know having a nice little feast and singing songs to each other. Uh, we sang them Grateful Dead songs. We had a, <laughs> musicians, and and they sang us their songs that they knew, which was really sad, because these people had been there for maybe forty thousand years. These are the last Neanderthal people, Denisovans, we now say, um, and um, their traditions went back to the dawn of time. But the missionaries had showed up there around World War II and had forbidden them their own customs and language. And they had taken from them their artifacts and put them in museums and had instead taught them Christian hymns in Susurunga, their language. And all they could do was apologetically sing Christian hymns like Away in a Manger and stuff in their Susurunga language. So that was also a tragedy. And the next morning there was um, – we got up to do our morning sighting because we had seen them the night before in the bay just at sunset. And so we got up at dawn to see the, the dawn appearance because they only came in at dawn and sunset. Otherwise, they lived out in the ocean. And there was something up on the shore. 
and with a feeling of dread in my heart, I jumped overboard and swam ashore. And there was the female of this family pod. There had been a male, a female, and a baby. And she was dead at the shore with a bullet hole in her. And the little tugboat was gone. And the, the logs had not been taken. And it was pretty easy to see what had happened. That somebody on the little boat uh, that had simply shot her. And then, gone, uh-oh, we're going to be in trouble. So they left. But what would be the purpose of that? I mean, I, that see, that's where I would not know how to reconcile. Like, I would get so angry. Yep, we were. We were heartbroken and angry and upset and freaked out. It was devastating for us as well as for the people of the village. And you can see that in the video. It was just why people would do a thing like that, I don't know. Why do people go around carrying guns and shoot at things, you know? Um, I, I don't understand big game hunters. I don't understand people who go to Africa and want to shoot rhinos and elephants. And lions I don't and either. I thought maybe in your wizardry you would have some sort of understanding of that part of humanity because that's something that also is like such a huge question to me. Like why – I don't understand that urge. I, I think it has something to do with wanting to have dominion over nature. If you recall the story of the Garden of Eden in the Bible, um, after the people are cast out of the garden for disobedience and becoming enlightened – uh, the order is that you shall go out and have dominion over every creature on the earth. Um, no, wait, that's after the Noah's flood. Sorry, Noah's, after, that's when it is. Noah, yeah, when he lands, then God says, okay, you shall now have dominion over everything that lives on the earth and everything that crawls on the land and that swims in the sea and flies in the air. You shall be the terror and the dread of every living thing. And that's the charge that's given to humanity in that story. And there's people who feel that that's what they want to do. That drive to dominate, to have dominion, is, is a powerful force, evidently, because it has led us to empires and conquests and wars and tyrants and dictators throughout all of history. Well, a lot of destruction that I feel like, well, because this is something I write songs about a lot, is just why people need chaos and why we need conflict and drama and I just, the, that need, I have it. Most people I know have some fascination with a version of it, but I guess I just don't understand where that comes from or how to eradicate it from my heart because I feel like coming to peace is the ultimate, like that's the ultimate objective. It is, it is. And uh, we have to go past this. We really do. We have to outgrow this. It's 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 a great plague of humanity. This idea that we must have dominion over everything, everyone else. And and a new culture has been emerging and recovering. I mean, once upon a time, I think that's the way we were. And many, uh, many peoples are, you know, perfectly nice. The, the traditional uh, Native American aspect about how nature is perceived that we see in, the, you know, words of Chief Seattle and stuff like that are very profound, that we are... I mean, the real lesson here is that we are all children of the same mother and we are all one. We are not separate beings. We do not, our mission is not to have dominion over the earth and of all the creatures. Our mission is to um, to achieve that kind of a oneness, to restore the family, to restore and to heal and to nurture and protect and all that stuff. And it is emerging. No, I definitely think that there's progress in both directions. It's like it feels like the pendulum swings towards darkness and it's really intense, but then it swings towards light and it's really intense. Like 
kind of like the waves. It's all a question of which wolf will win, is if you want to take the old story, you know, and it's the one you feed. So we have to feed the, the, the world we want to have. And this is a good time for that because, um, as, I, as I've mentioned a few times in this conversation, but I haven't really gotten too far, this is the, um, the next 60-year cultural renaissance cycle. Is that every 60 years back to the Italian Renaissance of the 1480s, there's been a cultural renaissance. The, the Reformation of the 1540s, the, the golden age of the um, uh, Elizabethan English Renaissance of the 1600s, the scientific revolution of the 1660s, the Great Awakening of the 1720s, the French and American revolutions and Age of Reason, the 1780s, the Transcendentalist Awakening of the 1840s, the Golden Dawn, at the turn of the century, and the New Age Cultural Revolution of the 1960s, and now we are at the dawning year of the next one, which is being called the Awakening. And so here we are Awakening. again. Yep. Here we are. So do you believe that, like, what do you believe the Awakening is going to bring? Ah, well, I think that there will be a new wave of positive consciousness. I mean, look at the previous ones. Look at what they have brought. The The last time around brought us, um, you know, the sexual freedom movement, the free speech movement, the civil rights movement, the women's movement, the gay rights movement, the environmental movement, and the pagan movement, for that matter. And so many of the movements of positive energy that have shaped the world over the last 60 years all began the last time. And in, in the previous ones, we have the same thing. The poetry, the music, the art of each of these fill museums you know, and still inspire us. You know, we still play the music of Beethoven. We still read the poetry of Whitman. You know, we still, you know, look at the art of Michelangelo and Leonardo da Vinci. These all occurred Even during Bob those Dylan, Renaissances. When, you when I think about like the latest one would be the 60s, yep. the 1960s, then I think of the music of that time is always so inspirational, just full of like each, ravenous Each of these change. ages is accompanied by its own music. And you as a music musician are in a space now to be bringing part of the new revolution of what is the music going to be of this age, the music of the awakening. I'm I'm pretty sure without having heard your stuff that you're already doing it. <laughs> well, no pressure, but I'm going to try to fully embrace the awakening and try to bring it into the the musical realm of the soundtrack of the awakening. It's crazy to me that what the world has forgotten and like what you said earlier when we first started talking, what just kind of gets like women in the patriarchy get written out of history. And that is a sad omission. Um, I and I think that women have been deliberately erased from history by centuries of patriarchal oppression. The, the rise of the patriarchy, which has occurred in not just one single thing, but many episodes over the last 3,600 years or so at least, has um, largely been designed to try to disempower women and erase women from the history and from the, re the recording. One of the greatest of all, uh, in my mind, one of the great women wizards was Ahipatia of Alexandria. And she was the last librarian of the great library and an incredible teacher and an amazing woman. And they made a wonderful movie about her called Agora, which I highly recommend. It's very authentic. She was an incredible woman. You know, um, Hatshepsut was the first recorded female pharaoh. And since it was so unusual, for a woman to rule, she even had to wear a little fake beard 
uh, you know, attached to her ears with a strap. It was like very cute. Why does it seem like men, the patriarchy, want to erase women from history? Is it a, what is that? What is that need? Well, power. Women have a different kind of an agenda overall when it comes to power. Women's goals tend to be towards creating security and and thinking towards the succeeding generations. Women have generally raised the children and bear the children and want to make the world a better place for them. Whereas men want to rule, you know, they, they um, and these are competing agendas very often. And every, uh, we, we find in history, there are many societies, which you see, they have a stopping point. They're frozen at a moment in time. And if that may be the Middle Ages, like um, uh, we see in the Middle East, they're frozen in the Middle Ages right there. They're still stuck in this time. We see places that are frozen in the Stone Age. And in all of these, there's a story. It may be a historical story or just a legend in which the men rose up and took away the power from women. Because prim primarily, originally, women held the greatest power because of having the power to bring forth new life. Without that, you got nothing, you know. I mean, you get rid of the women and you don't have any more babies. That's kind of basic there. And so in the fundamental society structure, the men's job was to provide and nurture and protect uh, the women and to be that, to be the, you know, to go out and do the hunting, to go out and, and you know, defend the village against uh, invaders, all that kind of good stuff. But all of the advances of civilization that we consider cultural advances in, um, well, all the, all the arts, all the domestic arts, the domestation means making a home, you know, and that's what women have been engaged in and have uh, invented basketry and weaving and, uh, and cloth making and um, cooking and pottery, and it goes on and on and on, all these things, whereas men's primary contributions historically have been weapons. That's what the men want to do. Just like any new wonderful invention that people come up with today, the military comes in and wants to figure out how to weaponize it. And that's what the guys do. I, it's embarrassing as a guy. I, mean, I really I, I think it's embarrassing. Well, I, I wanted I to know it. what that is, that um, desire to destroy versus I do feel as a woman, even when I see someone I don't know, I feel very protective and... Um, you know, if I go out and I see another woman at a bar or something, like I will always be super protective of other people and other women, even other children I see that I, aren't my children. I don't particularly like children that much, but I'm so much more protective. You know, as animals, we want to procreate and have our lineage go on in the world. But at the same time, we have wars and kill each other's children over whatever, fill in the blank over religion, over oil, over whatever. And I just never understood that. I've, um, I am a woman, but I also feel like I have a lot of masculine tendencies because I grew up without a dad. And I've really made my life for myself. So I feel like my yin and yang, I have a, I have a lot of both. Like, the masculine is very strong sometimes to the point where I wish it would uh, calm down. And then I'm also very emotional. So then the feminine is very strong. I've got both sides flaring. I think the goal, the ideal optimal thing is balance. As you said, the integration of the yin and yang and all of that. 
and um, and and in civilization, humanity, especially uh, patriarchal humanity, has gotten way out of balance, and it has driven an imbalance. I mean, it, it's hard to know exactly where it started, but there was one particular moment in history that that is, I think, pivotal, and that was in 1627 BCE, when um, the Bronze Age came to an end and the Iron Age began with a devastating natural cataclysm, the explosion of a huge volcano north of Crete in the Aegean Sea. And our legend of Atlantis stems from this event. And the events of that time also are what are recorded in the story of the Exodus. The parting of the Red Sea, for example, was a tsunami drawing the water out from that particular explosion. So we can pinpoint the date of these things to 1627 because we have the lava and stuff. And it was, it was devastating. And up to that time, the culture of the Mediterranean, Egypt, the Middle Kingdom of Egypt, the Middle Kingdom of the, the Middle Age of Greece, all these cultures were very um, egalitarian. You know, we, we don't see this, this big power struggle and weapons and wars and military stuff in that era. Most of the cities were unfortified. You didn't see big walls around them and defenses. What we see is... Um, you know, men and women working together in partnership and building societies based on trade, primarily. And we had big trading empires where people were all over the world. Um, very different than conquest in, in war and aggression. But then this thing happened, and it was incredibly destructive. And before that time, the orientation that people had religiously was toward the earth, towards Mother Earth and her children, the... Um, uh, we have the story of the Battle of the Titans in the Greek mythology, where the Titans were the children of Mother Earth, of Gaia, and they were defeated by the rising new Olympians, who were the sky gods who conquered them. We see the same thing in the Norse mythology of the, the, the Aesir taking over from the Vanir, or in Christianity, the story, or Judaism, the story of the war in heaven, where the rebel angels were cast down and defeated. This is a recurrent kind of a theme of a conflict, and it all revolves around this particular moment in history that was pivotal, because one of the things that happened at that time was a reign of Nicolaian meteors, meteorite all throughout the whole Middle East, centered around the Black Sea. And iron in the ancient times could only be obtained from meteors, meteoric iron. Forging iron from iron ore requires... Uh, a forge that has to reach temperatures that were simply not available in ancient times. So any iron that we had from the old days was always meteoric nickel iron. Well, there wasn't much of that, you know, there really wasn't. Most of the meteors are stony anyway and very rare to find an iron one. But at this time, suddenly there was this rain from the heavens of thunderbolts of the gods is how they were interpreted because the people who lived in the steppes of Asia around the Black Sea, especially to the north side of it, were nomads, nomadic horse people. They were the people who first domesticated horses for riding. And they lived that way. They, they just rode their horses on a great sea of grass with fe no features, no forests, no lakes, no rivers, no mountains, just an endless sea of grass. And so their markers were not on the ground, not terrestrial markers like we make now on our maps. Their maps were of the heavens the stars and the planets, and they named all the constellations. All the constellations that we now utilize, there's where they came from. These guys laying on their backs there looking at the stars and making star maps. We even see star maps in cave paintings on the ceilings of caves where people were doing that.
And then suddenly, out of nowhere, suddenly these streaks of light, these thunderbolts from the heavens are raining down upon the earth, obviously hurled by the gods, you know, because the planets also specifically were thought to be gods. All of our names of the planets today, they're names of gods. You know, Jupiter and Venus, Mars, Saturn, you know, all those, Venus, all of them. And so this is what you got up there in the sky. Suddenly, this particular bunch of people were equipped with invincible weaponry that the world had never seen before. And they were in the technology involved in working with copper, which everybody had at that time during the Bronze and Copper Age, could easily be utilized to, um, to beat nickel iron, meteoric nickel iron, which is like stainless steel. It's, it can also be magnetized, which makes it magic, which is also pretty cool. You could have magic swords that were magnetic. Oh. And um, with these iron weapons, with their swords and spears of iron points, they came crashing through the remnants of civilizations for that time that had been devastated by earthquakes and volcanoes and, and tsunamis and stuff, uh, which are all in the record, you know, and their iron stuff cut through the copper and bronze shields and weapons like a hot knife through butter. And it was devastating. And this is called the Aryan invasion because the word Aryan means iron. And it also means meteorite. That's where the word comes from. Iron, Aryan, meteorite, same word, same thing. And so a new pantheon emerged, a new kind of gods, gods not of the earth, but of the sky. Gods who were, whose power was not in growth and regeneration, gods whose power was in destruction and devastation. And this became the new religion because these people had the weapons and they killed everybody who stood in their way. They just simply wiped them out. They destroyed the temples. They, they raped and murdered the priestesses. They killed the men trying to defend the villages. And out of that arose a whole new religion, a patriarchal monotheistic religion based on a powerful God who lived in the sky. Sound familiar? Yeah. You know? I've heard and of that one before. At that moment, and this is the moment of the Exodus. And interestingly enough, at the same time, a new means of communicating emerged. Um, and that's the alphabet. The, before that time, there was no alphabetic writing. Alpha, writing was all done where it existed at all in, by drawing pictures, hieroglyphs. People tried to draw pictures and ideas. The first alphabet, that is a couple of dozen symbols that represented sounds of spoken speech, phonemes, was invented by Moses to write down the Ten Commandments because the, you cannot write the Ten Commandments in hieroglyphs. So oh. he invented the first alphabet. <laughs> Other alphabets were invented later on by other people. Muhammad invented the, the uh, Arabic alphabet. So this is this began, and so what this process gave us was a shift in the in the hemispheres of our brain from one side to the other. The focus previously, when we were doing visual uh, communications and, um, and and all the type of world from that, was basically right brain stuff. The, the hemisphere brain we associate with intuition, emotion, dreams, music, poetry, all that kind of stuff. That had been the primary locus of consciousness. That's where I live usually. It is still the primary locus of consciousness predominantly in women. Exactly. The, the left hemisphere was the hemisphere that governed mechanical stuff and uh, practical things and and mathematical things and all that kind of stuff that we associate with the right hand. So right hand versus the left hand kind of thinking here. And um, that shifted. It, it shifted over. 
to so we got a whole new kind of a culture a right-handed culture and all the weapons and tools that emerged were meant to be used only by the right hand try to use ordinary scissors with your left hand it's or almost any tools are all made. So my mom right is left-handed. Does that mean she is more um, left-brained? More right-brained. Right more right-brained. The sides of the brain control the opposite side. Yes, stronger. But here's the real kick. The communication between the hemispheres occurs right down the middle in an area called, called the corpus callosum that allows both sides to talk to each other. And in women, the corpus callosum is normally much, much larger than it is normally in men. Now, there are men whose corpus callosum is bigger and who communicate with each other with both sides, artists, musicians, and so on, who have better communication. But by and large, um, and especially in some extreme cases, the corpus callosum for men is a whole lot smaller, and they're not talking to the other side at all. Yeah, especially I the really you. extreme examples of the tyrants and the villains. Some men I've met, I really, really believe you with that one. I mean, uh, you don't have to look too far uh, to see them in government, you know? Yes. So that's basically the story. And for the last um, 3,600 years, this uh, new monotheistic uh, religion worshiping an omnipotent sky father who destroyed by wrath and thunderbolts um, had taken over the world and its various mutations to become the dominant religion because it's, that's what it's all about, is dominance, dominion. They want to rule the world. You know, in fact, the strongest sect of that today is, are called dominionists. That's, that's what they even call themselves. They want to have dominion. They want to rule. And that's the There's religion? A, the dominionists, it's, it's the significant branch of Christianity of which um, Vice President Pence is a, is a prominent member, for example. They used to, in fact, if kids were left-handed, they would force them to become right-handed. The, the left hand uh, was called the sinister hand. That's the French for left, Latin. And that also we think of that as evil. So a lot of women were persecuted and burned at the stake as witches for being left-handed. You know, oh my God, my that. mom would definitely so, have been burned at the stake. <laughs> I think I probably would have been burned by now too. It, that was the thing. It was a purge uh, to tr in Europe uh, to try to simply purge the gene pool of intelligent, strong, powerful, creative, independent women. And I think that the most uh, exciting thing of this time, of uh, this century, this past century, this past hundred years or so, going from, um, you know, giving, getting women getting the vote for a little over a hundred years ago, has been the re-empowerment of women, women taking a new place back in the world. This is huge. After 3,600 years, of trying to suppress you guys, you know, they can't do that anymore. They're not allowed to burn you. It's still, at least not in this country. I mean, in the Middle East, you know, it's still that way. And there is a rising of a new cult of really horrible guys called the incels, the involuntary celibates. I've heard of this, but I don't know. I would love for you to tell me about this because I recently heard about it, but I don't actually know. I don't have the facts about what an incel is. It's basically guys who can't get laid because they're they're well they're not uh, they're not nice <laughs> you know that's one way of putting it and um, they think that they are owed that that uh, that's what they should have and so uh, they feel that rape and persecution of women and even killing women who won't put out is justified to them and it's become a whole subculture. It can be very embarrassing to be human, especially when I see 
um, the treatment of animals and just other human beings, because I have read that you love animals. I had a connection with a boa constrictor when you were young. And I have your book here, Grimoire for the Apprentice Wizard. And this is by Oberon Zell Ravenheart. And it is basically a handbook on how to start a journey into wizardry. Would you put it that way? Having written that book, uh, realizing that actually we'd put together a textbook, the next thing we had to do was to create a school to use it. So that kind of gave rise to the Gray School of Wizardry, uh, started with that book. And it's still a basic textbook for the first for the first level in the school. It's blowing my mind. And I feel like I was raised by a very open-minded hippie woman. And it's there's so much information in here. Every chapter is like a different level. You are making my brain just step up into a whole different perception level every chapter I read of this book. So I recommend everybody out there get this book. It is fascinating. It is so interesting. It makes me connect deeper to myself and also those around me, the animals around me, the earth, everything. It just kind of puts it all into this really beautiful perspective that I personally have been so busy that I don't stop and connect to that often, which is why I'm really excited to talk to you. But keep going. I didn't want to interrupt you. I just wanted to tell you that I love your book. And I wanted everybody to know that your book's amazing. <laughs> when I formed the Gray Council, I got a hold of uh, a, a collection of a couple dozen prominent sages and mages that I happen to know in the magical community. I set forth the goal for the book to work together to create a handbook that we all wish we could have gotten a hold of when we were starting on the path. And one that come around our next incarnation, this is the book we want to get handed to us of our coming of age, you know, that kind of yes. thing. And that it would be something that you keep as a lifetime reference, like the Boy Scout handbook. So I oh, think I'm we giving were this to I'm everyone really for it. Christmas. And I know that Christmas is, I mean, you, you tell me, I actually don't know much about paganism because I know that the Church of All Worlds, you were one of the founding members of, and that's neo-paganism. So what is the, um, what are some of like the founding beliefs and is it a religion or is it just more of a community? Well, you know, um, that's a very interesting way of putting it. Um, it is a religion. Um, it is also the church of all worlds specifically is a church. A church is a community of people who share a common vision and values, belief system, faith, whatever it may be. So that's what constitutes a church. Um, Religion, the word means relinking, and it's, it's all of that that connects us with the larger world, with each other, everything like that. That's what the word means and should mean. It should not mean churchianity, which is unfortunately the way it's become understood by far too many people today. And we've been losing a really important concept, which people replace with spirituality, which is all very nifty, but that's really only about the realm of the spirit, you know, whereas it's also important to connect with the, the realm of the material world as well. Everything, everything should be connected. We've severed all these connections. We've severed men from women, humanity from nature, you know, light from dark, um, you know, every possible thing we think we've, we've split these things up into little separate categories where they should not be. We've separated races, nations, um, 
uh, languages, uh, religions, faiths, everything. And um, I think that part of our task, the real assignment for this stage of, of uh, society, now that we are just into the Aquarian age and also at the beginning of the next 60-year cultural renaissance cycle, which I'd like to say a little more about it, is to bring it all back together. And paganism, that's what it's about. It is the old religion. It's the primal thing that means simply people of the country. It means country people. Um, in French, uh, the word, the Latin word pagan is translated as paysan, which means peasant. Our word peasant comes from that. So it has to do with that connection with the earth, that deeper connection, which connects us with everything. Because we go down deep enough, everything is connected because we all rise from the same earth. And we're all children of the same mother, Mother Earth. Everybody knows about Mother Earth, Mother Nature. She's the most universal archetype in existence. You know, there's not a culture or people anywhere who don't recognize her. But there are so many people, especially in power, that do not want to protect Mother Earth and just the Earth and global warming or climate change. It's kind of almost like a subject that's for opinion versus, in my mind, it would only make sense to all come together to protect the very place we're living on. And it's a very symbiotic relationship we have. And without the earth, we are fucked. And somehow that's lost on a lot of people. And it's really confusing to me. The thing is this sense of separation again. People think they can be separate. And, and we aren't. We are all... Um, we're cells in the greater body of the living biosphere of Earth. Our DNA is shared with all of life on Earth. For the last half a billion years since the Cambrian explosion, the life on Earth has emerged as one single vast entity comprising countless species and ecosystems. But these are like the organs and cells in our own body. Just as we start off life as a single fertilized cell, and every cell in our body carries that very same DNA and protoplasm, the very same thing is true for the entire planetary biosphere. All life began with that single origin point half a billion years ago when, um, well, I think it was a moment of fertilization. I'm, I'm of the opinion that life has come here from space in comets. But, I am you know, too. I um, am too. It, the point isn't so I was much. wanted to ask you about that because I have a very strong intuition feeling that the extraterrestrial life that we've connected with and it's all been very secretive is about to, that information is about to be given to us and openly like it'll become part of a conversation. It won't be looked at as quote unquote crazy or like you're a wacko. Like I just have this feeling that it's going to start becoming a part of our culture to talk about it more, much like race in the past year has just become taboo to all of a sudden it's, on the table to talk about. I feel like extraterrestrial life is about to, I just have this feeling that very soon it's going to be, it's going to go from being this weird taboo, very kooky thing to talk about to all of a sudden be something that is on the table and we're all going to address as the earth together. Well, I think so. And I think that we will find the, 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 a great cosmic secret when we start actually, um, looking at extraterrestrial life, even even whatever we may find on, on Mars or on the other planets of our own solar system or on space exploration, uh, purely apart from what may be hiding at Area 51, 
in any case, I think that the real secret is going to be that we all share the same DNA and that, it is, that we are part of a vaster thing, that the, the earth is seeded and grown just like we seed, you know, uh, plants or that we send out offspring. And that, that the goal ultimately of all life forms, every life form anywhere, the fundamental goal is to reproduce itself. And developing spaceflight and extraterrestrial contacts and um, terraforming of other worlds, that's how a planet reproduces itself. What and is I'm, terraforming? And I'm pretty convinced that that's how life came to the Earth. It's making another world habitable by, by Terrans, Earth people, you know, by, by planting and seeding and nurturing and gardening, you know, to shape a, a new environment that would be hospitable to life. That's what terraforming is. And that will be our goal as we go out there to places like Mars and uh, other worlds. We will, we will be trying to make them habitable. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Snag a job is where America goes to hire. With the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snag a Job is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. So the end goal is to just keep going. But is there a point to life? Do you think there's a ending of consciousness? Do you think there is a evolution where then you just are done being what you would call 
conscious? Or do you think that is infinite? It's infinite. I think that, in fact, consciousness is the fundamental foundation of the cosmos itself. When we get down to the, in, in the field of quantum physics, which is a big conversation going on these days in the magical community, everybody you, you talk to anywhere, if you bring on any other you know, wizards onto the show, we'll, they'll all talk to you about quantum physics. You're the only wizard I know. You're my favorite wizard. Oh, thank you. Thank you. That, <laughs> that's pretty easy. But uh, it's turning out as we're articulating the laws of quantum physics as we're discovering, they are turning out to be exactly the same as the laws of magic that have been preserved in grimoires for thousands of years and passed on down. So, um, the, the point of that is that if we go deeper and deeper, we get down past the cellular level, down to the molecular, down to the atomic, down to the subatomic level, down to the particle level, all the way down to the bottom. There is no there there. There is nothing solid. There is no things. You know, even, even subatomic particles are not objects. They're, they're spins. It's like you're looking at an ocean and you'll see waves and eddies and little whirlpools, but you can't dip them out in a bucket and take them home with you, you know, because yeah. they're not actually things. And this is the way we get down to the very basis. And what we get is what's called the quantum field that is at the foundation of everything. And it is not a thing. It's like an ocean of which everything else are just waves and eddies and currents in it and vortices, you know, and spin and all that stuff, but no things. And that is consciousness. The What is emerging and out the fringes of the most forward-thinking quantum physics is, is that the, the cosmos, the universe, is consciousness itself at the fundamental level, which means that everything that we experience as a reality is a simulation. It's, it's a... Um, they call this the simulation hypothesis. We're living in the matrix, essentially, of our I'm, own I have never creation. seen the matrix. <laughs> I've also never seen Harry Potter. I'm so screwed. But I was going to watch it last night, but I was like, that's silly. And now I fully am going to do my homework and watch both of those things. But I had to tell on myself that I haven't seen the matrix or Harry Potter. But I know what you mean in terms of civilization, because I had heard you speak on another podcast and you were talking about um, this avatar idea, which I would love for you to explain to the listeners because I found it really interesting and I really connected with it. The, the best metaphor for consciousness that we've always used is water. So we, we talk about the river of life and the well of souls and we talk about that existence is like um, you know raindrops of individuals and eventually we flow down. But the thing about water is it's a universal stuff and we can pour it you know from one vessel into another and it will take the shape of the vessel but it doesn't have any shape or form of its own and it's all the same stuff throughout the universe in fact it's the most common and oldest um, compound in the universe it's it's everywhere we used to think the earth was unique because we got all this water but now we're finding it everywhere everywhere we look there's water it's the most common substance in the solar system and the galaxy and everywhere most of it's frozen, which is why we weren't really noticing, but it's there. You know, we've, there's, you know, frozen enough water frozen beneath the craters of the moon to fill the Great Lakes. Oceans of Mars frozen beneath the sands and the rings of Saturn are all icebergs, that kind of stuff. So is it is with consciousness. And we, as these physical vessels, we're just like a vessel that contains water. 
in which the consciousness is poured into us. We are avatars, just like we have in our gaming thing. We, we animate these avatars. We create them, then we enter our consciousness into them, and we act through them. Well, right now, our gaming things are pretty crude. I mean, we sit back, we have a distance, we have a keyboard in front of us. But now we're getting to where we can put on a virtual reality goggles and right. actually enter into that world and look out through the eyes of the avatar and be within the avatar. Well, that's just another level. Now, this is where we are right now in 2020. How Think how far we've come in the last 10 years with this or the last 20 years. Imagine crazy. where this kind of thing will be in 100 years. What will our gaming worlds look like then? We will be completely immersed in them, like in the movie, the Avatar, the, sorry, the, um, the Matrix or any other places. Now, imagine a thousand years from now. See, our present existence is a tiny little sliver in time. Just a tiny little sliver. It was. It's hard to remember um, that. Two thousand years ago was the presence. Yeah. Right, but we have to. We stand on the back on, on the top of a huge, huge pinnacle of evolution in time. Dragons ruled the earth for hundred and fifty million years, and all of humanity has only been here for two or three hundred thousand years. You know, we've only had. Um, agriculture for 10,000 years, because this is what we do as conscious beings. We can't stand boredom. We have yes. to play. We have to do something. We create. We invent. This is what gods do, you know? And um, and we are all God in that sense. If we, if we look at God as cosmic universal consciousness, what I was talking about there with the quantum field, well, we're all a part of that. And, and not just a separate part, we're all, we're all one and we're all interconnected with it. We're connected with the spirit that flows through us that we share with all other life in the universe. We're connected with the water that flows through our body. We're connected with the, with the um, protoplasm in our cells and the DNA. The connections are so deep and so profound, there is no separation. And death is not a separation. Death is like in a game, when the, you come to the end of the game and you may have a spectacular death in the game and then you... You res out and you you step back and you're away from the game and you look down and you say, well, that was that was interesting. Do I want to play another game, or maybe something different? What else have I got here to play? Or maybe well, I'll go do back you into that one and see if I can other... get to the next level. Do you think when you're because I love the idea of water? Like I think I'm thinking of my body as the outside part, and then you just pour my consciousness in, and that's me. So then. When I when it's my time to pass away, you had another word for um, passing on. I was reading, but I forget what it is. Discorporating. Discorporating. Discorporation. Which I've never heard of that word before. But when you discorporate, is just your consciousness being removed from the shell, almost like a cicada when they shed that shell. So where in your wizardry, wizardry, would you say that that consciousness then goes? The fact that every culture, every people, and every religion has an idea of somewhere to go after this one, that our consciousness does not end at death. Everybody has an idea that it goes on. But they have different ideas of where it goes. And um, some of these, I think, are derived from our experience in dreams because we go into another world where we are conscious and we experience stuff all around us. And I think all of the afterlives of different cultures, whatever they may be, you know, heaven, hell, the blessed isles, the, you know, Valhalla, wherever it may be, everybody's got something. 
out there is that it's a it's also a creation in a sense it's a virtual reality like a dream that we then pass back into and maybe there's another one behind that and another one behind that you know we don't know where we are how many layers down are we it's like one of those russian nesting dolls you know oh, that you keep having layer after layer after layer but it's, the important thing is it doesn't end well that sounds exhausting though to me dying and getting to go even just have like a little time off sounds more relaxing than just never getting time off. Sounds a little exhausting. I think we can get time off. I mean, <laughs> some of the uh, concepts are basically about that, a place to have a little time off, uh, 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 a resting place, a paradise, a, vac a vacation spot. And, you know, um, many of us come back for another run. You know, uh, we reincarnate. You know, but I don't think everybody does that, and I don't think it's a requirement, but it certainly appears to be an option because we have lots of good documentation of that. Where and, is and that some documentation? Some cultures have it a one-way trip, you know. In, well, the University of Virginia has done long studies on children who vividly remember their previous lives, usually their deaths, usually children who have nightmares. If you get them to talk about it and draw pictures, what you will get is an account of their death in their last life because it was the last thing they remembered before they went out. But it, but it left them with such a PTSD that they come back again carrying it still. So, um, and this has been documented where they've, they've gone back and done the research, the history to find out who was this other person because some of these kids have come with such detailed descriptions. They've had names and places and locations and they've been able to track down the previous person who had died. That's exactly confirms the story. University wow. of Virginia, look it up. Uh, I will. I will look it up. That's so There's interesting because I I've always, not always, but I have believed in reincarnation. And I love when there's some sort of place I can go to that seems like a reputable source and read about it. I don't know why I need that confirmation, that external confirmation, but it does make me feel more at ease. I have done a past life regression myself. And for me, I believed I was burned because I felt so, so, so hot. And still in this incarnation, I'm always hot, always. Like to the point where other people, it's intolerable for some of the people in the room, everyone in the room. I like being freezing cold and I love being, I also love being wet. I love being in the ocean. I don't know what that is, but I truly feel like, I'm not sure if you have any insight into this, but I feel like I should have been a mermaid or I should have been a fish or a whale or just I feel like potentially I could have been an animal I don't know if animals can come back as people or people can come back as animals but I dream about whales every night just like hundreds and hundreds of whales I you know this gets into something that I've I've um, speculated a lot about if we die and our spirit soul then rejoins the, the ocean, you know, like, like the water being poured back, you know, and going on down the river to the ocean again, from which another cup will be drawn at some future time. Well, we're not the only consciousness, obviously. Whales have a huge consciousness, much bigger than ours. And so sometimes when that new cup is dipped into the well of souls and come out, it may not be exactly what was in it with that before. You know, it may not be entirely human. It may be part of some animals as well. And in the case of a whale, if a whale spirit dies, I don't think it could even all fit into one human body. <laughs> it would probably require, you know, divvying it up a bit. 
<laughs> but um, I think that that's the way it works, is that we're all, just like the, the DNA that we have is shared with all of their life, I think so is the spirit. And the spirit, as is literally the water, the water that we drink and absorb through. It's been, it's been here before. It's passed through the bodies of every living being for millions of years. It's been drunk and pissed out by dinosaurs, you know. And that makes me so happy. <laughs> I, I, I really strongly believe that. When new beings of the same kind are being produced, then there's lots of room for new spirits to come in. But what happens when huge numbers have been exterminated? Like what we've done to the whales, where we once yes. the oceans had billions of whales, and then they were virtually exterminated for several centuries of whaling. Where did all those spirits go? You know, they had to go into new places, and humanity would be the place. There's a legend among Native Americans called the story of the the Rainbow Warriors, and the legend is that the spirits of all the Indians who died during the European invasions eventually had to come back somewhere and they reincarnated in the new generations of the children of the invaders because they had to come back somewhere. And the story came out first around 1970 or so when it was put out as the Hopi prophecy. And, um, and it was said that the generation had appeared as the, it, because part of the legend was that they would have a name similar to Hopis because it was a Hopi story because that means the peaceful ones and they would be the children of peace. So they said that, well, the hippies fit the prophecy and they would wear the feathers and beads and, and, and take up these ways and return to the, um, to the traditional ancient, uh, ancient ways. Are you so a hippie? you've got that kind of stuff going on. I, it's, it's all goes around and around. Am I a hippie? Sure. Uh, Come on. You know? <laughs> okay. Just making sure. Yep, I just want to make sure. <laughs> absolutely. Oh yeah. Well, I, it, it's interesting you put it in presence. It's not a was I. It's it's still a thing. Yeah, you are. It seems like a thing that was in the seventies, but I guess it is still something you are. My mom is a hippie as well. I guess I'm kind of a hippie also. I'm so grateful for your time, and I know this has been a weird, <laughs> a weird turn of events. But I just want to tell you, I'm so appreciative of your time and. I would love to continue this conversation sometime because it's just been so interesting. Um, and before I let you go, would you just tell us, for anybody who's listening, if they would like to attend your school, how they would go about doing that? Absolutely. We would love to have you. This school is made for you. If you're listening to this show and you're digging this stuff, the Gray School is what you're looking for. And it's um, we got about 300 students all around the world and a couple dozen teachers in over 500 classes in 16 departments, seven levels of apprenticeship, and then moving on from there. It's a unique and amazing place. And you can find it by just going to grayschool.com, G-R-E-Y-S-C-H-O-O-L.com. And check it out. You can look over a lot of stuff without actually having to enroll. But if you do enroll, I think that you will find it incredibly rewarding. And uh, hope to see you there. I still stick around enough to teach a few classes, but um, I'm mostly off doing other things these days. But we have an amazing faculty and incredible students of all ages. Uh, we, we, we have youth students, but most of our students are adults. So don't feel that it's a thing for kids. It's... Um, it's only that, uh, that we have openings in space for kids as well. But mostly, it's adult stuff. And I hope to see you there. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for being patient and 
talking with me extra long. I appreciate it. Keep on creeping on. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bop Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Pluma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds to Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club.